G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with the financial support of the Community Radio Federation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio. As we move into rallies across the country to change the rules and celebrate Labor Day, workers took a moment to remember their fallen comrades who left for work one day but never returned. We go outside Victoria Trades Hall to the ceremony held on the 27th of April. We then go to Queensland where Stick Together reporter Craig Garrett talks to Beth Moll, Secretary of the Queensland Nurses and Midwives Union, the QNMU, as they prepare for their rally on May the 7th. But first, some workers' news. That's the sounds of Tasmanian workers rallying in the Hobart CBD on Sunday, April 29th, calling for a change in the rules as part of the ACTU auspiced 12 days of action. Union Tasmania's secretary, Jessica Monday, said many Tasmanian workers were underemployed. We know that casualisation is hurting workers. We have a huge problem with underemployment and the government isn't talking about it. We've had public sector wages frozen at 2% for years and a government that's sending a signal to the private sector that they don't have to give decent pay rises, Ms Monday said. As we reported on Stick Together last week, the campaign against labour laws that have destroyed the penalty rate system, allowed a rise in casualisation, criminalised strike action and removed the arbitration system giving too much power to employers, was kicked off with a mass delegates meeting at Melbourne's Town Hall on the 17th of April and finishes on May the 9th in Melbourne in a mass rally. Across the country, workers like Tasmanian workers will be using their traditional Labor Day events to voice their concerns and join the Change the Rules campaign. With Jed Carney, the former president of the ACTU, winning the Northcote by-election recently, there has been some interesting moves by union women to enter the political fray. Michelle Myers, National Campaigns Coordinator and National Workers' Liaison Officer for the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia, has put her cap in the ring for the National President of the Labor Party. The National Executive is the Chief Administrative Authority of the Australian Labor Party, subject only to Labor's National Conference The National Executive is responsible for carrying out the decisions of national conferences and administering the party between conferences amongst other specific roles as defined by the National Constitution. It meets at least three times a year. Other candidates include Labor left faction South Australian Mark Butler seeking a second term and Labor right faction Queenslander Wayne Swan recently retired from Parliament. In Victoria, with an election scheduled for November the 24th, Cindy O'Connor has won pre-selection for the seat of Brunswick, held by Jane Garrett for Labor. 
On the 27th of September 2017, Garrett announced she would not contest Brunswick at the next state election and would seek pre-selection for the Victorian Legislative Council seat of Western Metropolitan Region. Long-time resident of Brunswick, O'Connor has worked in the union movement for 20 years, with stints at the Community and Public Sector Union, the ACTU, the National Union of Workers, and now the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. She is standing on the platform of taking action on housing affordability, on precarious work and workers' rights, on building the Melbourne Metro, promoting renewable energy, building schools and improving hospitals. The Federal Court has ordered contract cleaning company Spotless to pay more than $209,000 in redundancy and notice compensation to its former workers following a legal challenge by Union United Voice. Under the court order, Spotless has until the 11th of May to pay all entitlements plus interest to 21 former workers previously employed by the company on the Sunshine Coast. Some of these former employees had worked for Spotless for more than 20 years, yet they were sacked without receiving their entitlements, leaving them out of pocket by tens of thousands of dollars. The order follows the court's landmark ruling on the 2nd of March that the company's refusal to pay redundancies was unlawful. This groundbreaking legal decision means unscrupulous contract employers will not be able to rely on a blanket exemption to redundancy pay. This workers' victory may have prompted the news that the Turnbull government is considering a plan put forward by small business ombudsman Kate Carnell to lift hurdles for workers pursuing unfair dismissal claims, creating a small business enterprise agreement stream and inserting an award provision allowing small employers to trade off penalty rates and other entitlements for a higher hourly rate of pay. You may have remembered the fight to get the death of Georges Castillo Riffo be afforded a coronial inquest. Georges Castillo Riffo died during the construction of the new Royal Adelaide Hospital after being crushed by a scissor lift in November 2014. Earlier this month, WorkSafe South Australia Inspector Kate Kochi gave evidence in the coronial inquest into his death, revealing disturbing failures in the safety system. Counsel for the CFMEU, Dr Rafael Gray, cross-examined Inspector Kochi about her knowledge of a report then-Premier Jay Witherall ordered into the investigation and prosecution failings of the Safe Work South Australia after the prosecution relating to Mr Castile Riffo's death was dropped and if she had seen the recommendations of that report. Kochi was also cross-examined on whether she knew of a wallpaper safety on the NRAH site, when the reality on the ground does not line up with what the company Safety Paperwork says. Kochi said the South Australian Health Partnership CEO told her that ultimately the state government was responsible for workplace safety at the NRH site, and delegated that to SA Health Partners, who themselves delegated responsibility to the builder. Crucially, the SAHP 
CEO said that the delegations of responsibility were only to the extent it can be delegated within the law. Kochi admitted that neither she nor anyone else from Safe Work South Australia, so far as she knew, did anything to look further into the role or responsibility of the state government or SAHP for George's death. CFMEU State Secretary Aaron Cartledge said, Shocking failures in Safe Work South Australia's investigation into Mr Castillo Rifo's death have been revealed by the evidence in this coronial inquest. Workers are killed or injured because of WorkSafe SA's failure to properly enforce the law. The public has a right to know what this secret report into WorkSafe SA has exposed. War paper safety is rife in the construction industry. All the proper paperwork is filled out, but in reality, time pressure takes over, safe work practices go out the window and workers are killed or injured, he said. As this inquest has heard, workers who speak up for safety often find themselves out of work. Workers should not have to make a choice between speaking up about safety and providing for their families. The 20th of May, a 53-year-old shop fitter died after falling from a ladder in Maidstone. Twentieth of June, a fifty-five year old man died when the spreader truck he was using rolled on steep terrain at Limestone near Ye. On the twenty first of June, a forty-five year old man died when he fell from a stationary truck at a chicken breeding farm at Freshwater Creek near Geelong. Twenty seventh of June, a sixty eight year old carpenter died after falling from the second level of a house under construction at Calcula. The twenty seventh of June, a forty eight year old stable hand died after she fell from a horse during training at White Hills near Bendigo. Good morning, everyone. So welcome to everyone. Special welcome to Robin Scott, Minister for Finance and Multicultural Affairs, and all the other members of Parliament, State and Federal, who've joined us here today. Welcome to Claire Amys, Chief Executive of WorkSafe, and all the WorkSafe staff who are here with us today. Particular welcome to the Union Secretaries and Officials, Health and Safety Reps, Union Delegates and workers who are here today. Union sites have 50% less injuries than non-union sites without HSRs. You play a critical role in the fight for health and safety. Finally, I'd like to extend a welcome to Lana Cormie, wife of Charlie Hawkins, and Dave and Janine Brownlee, parents of Jack Brownlee. Charlie and Jack were killed in the Delicom Trench collapse just a few weeks ago. On behalf of everyone here today, I extend our deepest condolences and sympathies for your loss. This is the Victorian Trades Hall International Worker Memorial Day service. Today we stand in solidarity with our comrades around the globe in grief and anger and remember all of those killed at work. From Rana Plaza to the Grocon wall collapse, workers are still killed by employer negligence, recklessness and greed. Today we will remember all of those in Victoria who were killed at work in the last 12 months 
And we say one death is too many. When a person is killed, you cause irreparable damage to a family, a community, a workplace. And today we commit to fight for the living. I'd now like to introduce the Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, Luke Kilakari. Victoria has an ugly history of large industrial deaths. We go back to 1882 where we had 22 miners killed at Creswick. We think of the Spotswood disaster in 1895 where six sewerage workers were killed. In 1937, we had the Dalson Colliery explosion in Wonthaggy, killing 13. The Westgate Bridge disaster in 1970 where 35 people were killed and I acknowledge the presence of John Setka and think about him and his family on this day as well. The Kew Cottages fire in 96, where nine people were killed. The SO Longford explosion, where two workers were killed. The Kerrang train truck crash in 2007, 11 people killed. The Grocon wall collapse in 2013, where three people were killed. And lastly, the Delacombe trench collapse, where two people were killed on the 21st of March this year. This short list does not take account of the asbestos toll, the toll that's been taken when we think of occupational cancers, and it does not take account of the vast majority of deaths, which is a single person working on their own, sometimes with a group, sometimes unsupervised. We know that every worker killed leaves behind a shattered family, a shattered community, and a shattered workplace, and it's our job today not just to remember them, but to do what's next, which is to fight for them. Um, Victoria has come a long way with OHS laws, and we have some of the better laws in the country. Um, that was done because the union movement made significant efforts in this state, in, especially in 2008 and in 2004, where we had very large changes to the Act. But we say there is a gap in that Act. We say that in this state, we need industrial manslaughter laws. You can get insurance. You can get insurance in case you kill a worker on site. When it comes to a place where an employer thinks they can get insurance, we know that this system is fundamentally broken. So we are asking for a massive change in our laws. We want industrial manslaughter, just like other state and territories. We don't want Victoria to be left behind. We want Victoria to be leading in this place. It's not good enough for us as a movement just to mourn the dead we need to fight for living and comrades. This is a campaign that we are 100% committed to and we want you with us as well. Solidarity forever. Lana Cormie is the wife of Charlie Halkins who was killed in the Delacombe's trench collapse on the 21st of March this year. Lana has prepared a statement that will now be read out on her behalf by Bet from Grief Work Uniting. Today I'm speaking for Lana Cormie and offering my condolences to Mr and Mrs Brownlee. It is not right that I should be standing before you today. It is not right that on the 21st of March my husband did not come home from work. It is not right that my children will never again have their father read them a bedtime story. Nor will they have cricket matches in the backyard stand beside him on their wedding day or share with him the joy of the birth of their children. It is not right that I will not share my children's journey into adulthood with my husband and that I must work this path without him by my side. It is not right that my husband was a father at breakfast 
and gone by lunchtime. It is not right that any wife should kiss their husband goodbye in the morning and never greet him as he returns from work. It is not right that these deaths are often called workplace accidents. They are not. They are preventable. They are a failure in our culture, our values, our, our, values, our systems and our laws. Our workers are not properly presented in their workplaces. Currently, power is unequal and unfair, and we should change that. We should ask what is right before what is profitable. And if we cannot rely on the people in power to do this, then we should change the laws and regulations so that they have no choice. Make employers accountable, if not by choice, then by laws that hold them responsible for the safety of their workers. Bring the laws into line with what the public expects. We have a right to have laws that will uphold the values of our people. Improve the resourcing of the safety regulator so that they can focus on prevention and that they have the power to do this effectively. Renew, review the safety guidelines to bring them into, into line with today's standards. Do this to make us safe. Do this for the mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters who have the right to expect that their loved one will come home from work. Do it so that no one again will have to stand before you and make this speech. Do it because it is the right thing to do. You are listening to Stick Together, Union News, Workers' Stories, Social Justice Issues. In our second report, our Stick Together Brisbane reporter, Craig Garrett, speaks with Beth Mole, Secretary of the Queensland Nurses and Midwives Union, QNMU, as the nurses gear up for the Brisbane Labor Day rallies on Monday, May the 7th. We cover almost 60,000 nurses and midwives now. We're the largest union in Queensland as part of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. We're the largest union in Australia. The ANMF is currently approaching 270,000 members. Over a quarter of a million nurses and midwives are members of our national union. We cover public, private, aged care in non-acute sectors at every level. So we cover from assistants in nursing who aren't regulated up to executive directors of nursing and midwifery. I started by asking what the three overarching issues are for Queensland's unions. The primary one is supporting the ACTU's Change the Rules campaign. That's fundamentally making sure that workers have the rights that we deserve to have across the board. So their industrial rights, fair funding for services, a social wage, making sure that taxation is fair, that corporations are paying their fair share of tax and that the community is provided with the services that they deserve. It's about reshaping our whole society so that it is fair. We're also, of course, working together with all of the unions who are affiliated to the QCU, employers and civil society in a collaborative fashion to develop a new industrial relations uh, legislation framework. The first term of the Palaszczuk government, they really have fundamentally done some terrific 
industrial relations reform. So we've got the legislative framework now. That's a very broad framework. It's not only the specific Queensland Industrial Relations Act, it's also the workers' compensation, health and safety, around labour hire, around procurement, around industrial manslaughter. All of these really important pieces of legislation, we're making sure that they're given appropriate effect. The third area of campaigning is defending penalty rates. We were at the forefront of that campaign, working with unions such as United Voice and the SDA. And that's about building community networks and capacity around defending penalty rates. Because after all, penalty rates are so important for our members, nurses and midwives. About 20 to 30% of a nurse or a midwife's uh, wage is made up of penalty rates. I wanted to know about the behind-the-scenes industrial negotiations the QNMU undertakes. As a union, we're incredibly active in the legislative and policy space. I mean, we would make about a submission a week to various inquiries. Under the previous, um, the first Palaszczuk government, because it was a minority government, the Premier gave a commitment to the crossbenchers that every piece of legislation would go before a parliamentary committee because Queensland doesn't have an upper house. So we were incredibly busy lobbying for these industrial changes. Of course, we were undoing a lot of damage that had been done by the Newman government. The QCU, the Queensland Union Movement, lobbied political parties in advance of the 2015 election about the industrial relations changes that we wanted to see happen and then we held them to account for delivering on that and the government did. That's a big process. I mean, the number of committees that we have appeared before in the Queensland Parliament, I have lost count of. As I said, we're very active in that space. As a union, I think things that differentiate us as a union is we've got a democratic branch structure, so our members at the local workplace or in a community of interest, they determine the policy of the union. So a democratic branch structure, our training that we do for members and to develop activists is something that we have always heavily invested in and is a cornerstone of our success as well. And the third area that I think actually underpins our success is our research and policy work. And it's not only industrial legislative change, it's about health policy, it's about professional issues, it's about social issues. I wanted to know how the complex beast of health fits together at a hospital level and at state and federal government levels and how specific issues intersect in Queensland as compared to other states. A really good example of the complexity of this interplay is a campaign that we've got going right now around federal health funding, and it's called Pay Up, Mr Turnbull. We're running this campaign with United Voice and together, the main public sector union, because the federal government has reneged on a previous undertaking to fund the Queensland government to the tune of $1.1 billion. This is a historical underpayment for services that have already been provided by the Queensland government under the rules that they signed up to. The Abbott government tore up that agreement and that was partially overturned by Malcolm Turnbull but there's still some historical underpayments by the federal government that the Queensland government is trying to recover before they sign up to the next five-year health agreement which has to be signed up to by the end of this year. This might sound really 
you know, I can, and every COAG meeting, they actually, they had a blue about it in February. There was a health minister's meeting where they went back to this issue. It is now only Queensland, Victoria and Tasmania who are holding out. They have settled with some of the other states. But Queensland cannot settle when they are owed $1.1 billion because that has a direct impact on the types of services that can be provided to the community. If they don't get that funding, the money has to come from somewhere and it will come from Queensland government coffers. The Queensland government is absolutely correct not to sign up to a new healthcare agreement until this historical underfunding is addressed. For example, currently we believe that the federal government is cost shifting to the state government because they're not funding to have sufficient numbers of nursing staff in aged care. The average resident in aged care requires 4.3 hours of nursing per day. They're currently getting one and a half hours short of that per day. There are simply not enough nurses in aged care at the right level. Because of that, what's happening is when people get acutely ill in aged care or they deteriorate, they haven't got the skilled nursing staff to care for them, so they get transferred particularly to public hospitals. I wanted to get a better understanding of the individual issues around aged care funding and nursing levels. Our aged care campaign nationally is the big focus for 2018. I think that most people would be shocked to know that there's not currently a minimum staffing and skill mix requirement in aged care. There's not even a requirement now for there to be a registered nurse on duty at an aged care facility 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is outrageous. There is an interplay between state and federal funding, not only for health, but for aged care services and disability services that absolutely has a direct impact not only on the community, but on the working lives of our members. This is an absolutely fundamentally important campaign for us in the lead up to the federal election. It is not only that there's not sufficient staffing and skill at the right level, skill mix level that's available, there's not appropriate accountability for the taxpayer funding that is provided in aged care. There's not a robust regulation framework for aged care. So there needs to be much greater transparency and public reporting in aged care. So what we're calling for is public reporting on the number of staff that they've got at a facility, their skill mix level and outcomes for residents as well. We think that funding should be tied to providing quality care and if the provider can't demonstrate that they are providing the appropriate funding for the level of care that's needed, well then they should be forced to pay that back to the Commonwealth. It needs to be much greater accountability for this. In Queensland on the 7th of May, our Labor Day marches on that long weekend are going to have a particular focus on making sure that we have minimum staffing ratios in aged care, that that's legislated by the federal government. We're going to be lobbying all political parties to deliver on this in the lead up to the federal election. We're going to make sure that Australians get the care that they deserve and we won't rest until it is addressed. That's it for Stick Together. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to speakers at the International Workers' Memorial Day and Beth Moll for being part of the show. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. Remember... 
Wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Until next time, stick together. Early in the morning, factory whistles blows. Man rises from bed and puts on his clothes. Man takes his lunch, walks out in the morning light. It's the work, the working, just the working life. The work, the working, the working life. Through the mansions of fear, through the mansions of pain, See my daddy walking through the factory gates in the rain. Factory takes his hearing, factory gives him life. It's the work, the working, just the working life. The work, the working, the working life. End of the day, factory whistles rise. We walk through them gates with death in our eyes. And you just better believe somebody's gonna get hurt tonight. It's the work.